You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them there. This morning, we're continuing our study in Paul's letter uh, to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 this morning. And as we've been going through Philippians, each week we've looked at our study and our text through the lens of joy. Each week we've looked at that theme of joy, and joy in the midst of our difficulties, and joy in the midst of our hardships, and joy in humility, and joy in what Jesus has done for us, and the incarnation, and we've, we've kind of filtered everything through the theme of this book, which is joy, and, and Paul encourages us to rejoice, and to have joy. And he starts off by saying, finally, finally, which is interesting because he doesn't close the letter here. In fact, he goes on for another two chapters, but that's kind of Paul's style. Like he'll say finally, and he probably has every intention of closing the letter, and, and then he just keeps right on going. Kind of, kind of like a pastor you might know, you know, he, uh, in closing, and then like 20 minutes later, you know, and, and so I come by it honestly. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And Paul is going to write this morning about things that he writes about a lot. He's going to talk about relationship. Relationship with Jesus as opposed to religion. That's what we want to talk about. A joy in relationship. And this is a theme that Paul talks a lot about relationship with God, that it isn't a religion, that it isn't approaching God in your own good works or by your own efforts in some sort of legalistic mindset, that it is by the grace of God. And, and these are things that Paul talks a lot about. And he says, look, for me to write these same things to you, it's not tedious, it's not boring, it's not repetitive, but for you it is safe. It's safe for us to hear the same things over and over again. And sometimes as a pastor, I, I kind of think that there's only like three things that I talk about. And, and that, you know, I'm just repeating myself all of the time. And, and yet, no, it's safe for us to hear those things. Just like in school, you heard the same information over and over again. And then like six months after you graduated, you couldn't remember a thing. It, it, we need to hear these things over and over again. And it's safe for us to hear these things. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And, and basically... The idea there is to be joyful as we, we talk about joy in re, relationship, joy in Jesus, that we would find our joy, not in our circumstances. That's, that's what the world says, that you would find happiness in how much money you have and how big of a house you own and what kind of car you drive and, and how things are going in your life. And Paul is telling us in Philippians that we can rejoice in the Lord despite all of that. 
Despite the fact that we don't have any of those things. Despite the fact that you're having marital struggles. Despite the fact that you're having relational difficulties with family members. Despite the fact that you have no money or that you just lost your job. Or that you're going through physical difficulties. Despite all of that, you can find joy in the Lord because literally this word rejoice means to be joyful in your union with Jesus. See, that's where we find our joy. Despite all of the things that are going on that for most people would cause them to just go into absolute depression, would cause them to want to end it all, would cause them to want to give up on life and just be completely discouraged and down and hate everyone. Paul says you can find joy. Now, Paul doesn't just write that flippantly. Because as Paul writes this, he is chained to a Roman prison guard awaiting certain death. And yet he can say, find joy Be joyful in your union with Jesus. You guys, it's not cool to be a sourpuss Christian. It's an oxymoron. To to just have like this perpetual frown on your face. And you know, you say that you're a Christian. You say that you're a follower of Jesus. And it's like, well, why don't you tell your face? Because your face is unaware of that fact. Your face does not know that you have a relationship with the creator of the universe. Where is your joy? Where is your peace? Where is your external evidence of what God is doing in your heart? That we would not walk around like my son when he gets up from, from bed. Carson, when he gets up from bed, has this frown for like the first 20 minutes. And I ask him, like, dude, what are you so upset about? All you're going to do today is watch movies and play with your trucks. You've got nothing to be upset about, but there's this frown like this, you know. And then he kind of gets out of that, and, and, and then he'll, like, he'll say something like, I want to watch movies, you know, or make me some pancakes, and, and then my wife will make him pancakes, and he'll say, pancakes make me happy. <laughs> pancakes make me happy. As if, you know, that is just the, the best thing in the world. And, and that's what makes him happy. But if you say, you know what, Carson, you're not going to watch TV today. That'll bum him out. Carson, no pancakes today. That will bum him out. He'll... he'll He'll cry, oh man, the world is coming to an end. And, and that's how a lot of us act. You know, when we get what we want, we say to the Lord, that makes me happy. That makes me happy, Lord. But when we don't get what we want, we have a frown on our face, we're a sourpuss, we're, we're like Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh. You know, here's Winnie the Pooh running around, you know, just having a good old time, life is great, you know, just give me a bucket of honey and I'm happy. And, and, and yet Eeyore is like, the world is coming to an end. The sky is falling. Everything in life stinks. And, and you know what? There's a lot of Christians who have that Eeyore mentality. And Paul says, be joyful in the Lord. And for me to write these same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And what he wants to talk about and what he wants to write about is something that he has written a lot about, and that is a relationship with God. 
a real relationship. Because you know what, you guys? It's not a religion. The question might be asked, can we approach God through religion? And the answer is no. There is no way that you can come to God apart from Jesus Christ. And when we give people the indication that Christianity is just another religion, just another religion in the long list of religions, when we give people that indication, we are doing them a great disservice. When people say, yeah, you know, that's your religion, you need to correct them in love. You need to be able to share with them the distinctions between Christianity and all other, quote, religions. Because we don't have a religion. Religion is man's attempt to get to God. Do you remember in the very beginning how they tried to build a tower to God, which seems really ridiculous? You know, the Tower of Babel. We're going we're gonna to reach God. It's like, well, you better be building for a long time because he exists outside of our time-space continuum. He's in a different dimension altogether. He's, he's spirit. And they tried to build a tower to God, and that's what religion is. And it was interesting because it was the Tower of Babel. It was, it was built in, in Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, which is the center of all religions, of all attempts to reach God on your own merit. And they all fall apart. But Christianity is a relationship where the God of the universe said, I want to have a relationship with you. And he came and he took on human flesh. And then he took the sin of the world upon himself. And then he rose again to validate what he did. And now he sits at the right hand of God to demonstrate that the work is done, that it's finished. We don't have a religion. And what Paul wants us to know this morning is that we have a relationship. And he wants to talk to them about the three marks of a false relationship with God and the three marks of a real relationship with God. And he wants to talk to them about these men that had crept into the church these men that were called Judaizers, and Paul deals with them a lot in his letters, especially in the book of Galatians. Paul dealt with that subject specifically in that letter because that church and those churches had been absolutely ravaged and thrashed by these Judaizers. And the Judaizers were guys that said, you know what, Jesus is cool, but... And whenever you hear that, Jesus is cool. Jesus is great. Jesus is awesome. But you know you've got a problem because you're adding to the work of Jesus. And that's what the Judaizers did. Hey, Jesus is cool. We're all about Jesus. But you need to add some stuff to it. And, and you need to eat a certain way, you, the dietary loss. And you need to be circumcised if you're a man. And, and, and you, you need to keep the Mosaic law and you need to dress a certain way and you need to give a certain amount of your money and you need to do boom, boom, boom and on and on it goes and it's all about what you can do for God but we like Jesus too and that's who Paul is dealing with here as he gives us three marks of a false relationship with God 
Three marks. And three times he says, beware, beware, beware. He's warning them. Just like a, a sign on a bench that says wet paint. Or a sign in the road that says look out for the bump. It, it's a warning. It, it's, it's a way for you to be aware of what's coming up and to know. And that's what Paul wants them to understand. That this is dangerous. That this will hurt you. Beware of these guys. Now it's really easy for us. And we love to do this in Bible study and in reading the Bible. We love to read about these guys and think, man, the Pharisees and the Judaizers, they were a bunch of jerks. I'm cool, but they were horrible. Can you believe how horrible these guys were? And we don't think about it in relationship to our own life. And you know what? Here at Calvary Chapel, we don't do that. We're not going to look at this and go, look, the Pharisees were horrible, but we're all great. Have a nice day. Enjoy the football games this afternoon. We're not going to do that because we want to see how these guys relate to us, the implications for our own lives because that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. And these marks of a false relationship, you guys, they creep into our lives so fast. It's unbelievable. And what started off as a really great relationship with the Lord ended up being this works, legalistic, funky, horrible religion. And it can creep into our lives as well. Three marks of a false relationship. The first thing he says is found in verse 2, beware of dogs. Beware of dogs. Now, when we read about dogs... You know, we're, we're Americans and we like dogs and we spend a lot of money on dogs. We have huge warehouses dedicated to buying stuff for your dog where you can bring your dog around, you know. And, and we love dogs. And we think of little puppies and we think of these little dogs you can put in your purse and they cost like $1,000 and if you breathe on them too hard, they die, you know. <laughs> we think of cute little dogs, but don't think of that kind of dog. That's not what Paul has in mind here. Paul's thinking about rabid mangy, ferocious pack dogs. Not unlike the ones you see dead all over the road in Mexico. If you've ever been to Mexico, there's like dead dogs everywhere, and the ones that aren't dead are like on a death wish. They just run right out in the road, right in front of cars, and they run around, nobody feeds them, and they, you know, they treat their dogs horribly down there. And they got mange, and they're just awful, and some of them are like mean, and they you know, chase you down and you know, rip your leg off and, you know, eat it for lunch because there's nothing else to eat. And, and that's the kind of dog that you want to think about when you hear, beware of dogs. Now, this is interesting because the Judaizers and the Pharisees and these religious people that Jesus had a real problem with, they called everybody else dogs. That was their term for everybody else that didn't agree with them. You're a dog. And it was very derogatory. Now Paul turns the tables on them and he says, beware of dogs. And the implication for our life is that these men and these people were the type that would call everybody else a dog, but they didn't see the dog-like qualities in their own life. And, And how true that is. What a mark of a false relationship with God that... You cannot see the truth about yourself. Oh, we notice the faults in everybody else. You ever notice that? That you are very good at detecting the faults in other people, which, let me just say, that's not a gift. 
And it's not some special, unique talent that you have, because we all have it. We're all really good at noticing the faults in other people. I mean, think about your spouse. All of her or all of his faults might as well be like a neon sign pasted to their chest. It's just like, woo, woo. You just know their faults. And it's not hard for you to detect those things. Or the people that you work with or the the people at your church. And and all of these things, we recognize the fault in others. And that, you guys, is a mark of a false relationship with God. When you cannot see the truth about yourself, but you're very critical of other people. You're always focused on others. And did you hear about them? Did you know what they did in judging others? And telling other people how horrible they are and how great you are. And always giving people advice and always giving people, you know, your insight because you're so much superior to them. And, and it's this finding fault but not recognizing the truth about yourself. And here's the thing. When you have a true encounter with God, all of a sudden you're not so worried about other people anymore. When you have a true encounter, as did Jeremiah, as did Isaiah, as did Paul, do you know what all of them said when they had that encounter with God? No longer were they looking around judging others. No longer were they saying how horrible other people were. No longer were they pointing out the fault in other people. They instantly became aware of their own sin. Remember Isaiah? Isaiah starts out his book, and, and he's talking about the sin that's going on in, in, the, in the nation of Israel. He's talking about all the surrounding nations and how horrible they are, and he pronounces woes on them. Woe to them, and woe to Chorazin, and woe to Tyre and Sidon. And then in chapter 6, after he kind of you know, pronounces all these woes and after judgment and after finding fault, and I'm not saying he was wrong in that, but then it came down to chapter 6, and it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah had an encounter with God. And do you know what happened after he had an encounter with God? No longer was he pronouncing woes. No longer was he looking around at the other people. You know what he said? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. He recognized his own sin. You remember the Apostle Paul? He came to the realization instantaneously of his own sin when he encountered Jesus. For years, as Paul's going to talk about in, in The subsequent verses that we're going to look at next week and the following weeks, Paul talks about his pedigree and how great he was. And man, he had it all together. And Paul thought he was on top of the world until he met Jesus. Before that, he was dragging people to jail and he was beating people up because they weren't as good as him. But then he encountered Jesus. And guess what? Nobody else mattered. He recognized his own sin. The same with Peter. Remember, Peter was out on the boat and he was trying to fish and he couldn't catch any fish. And Jesus said from the shore, hey, why don't you try casting your net on the other side of the boat? Which seems like a really ridiculous thing if you're a fisherman, right? Hey, just throw your net on the other side. Hey, look, buddy, I don't know who you are, but I've been fishing my whole life. 
But, but Peter had enough humility to go ahead and do it. Threw it on the other side. It was full to the brim. They've been fishing all night. It's now full. They can't even hardly get it into the boat. At that moment, guess what Peter recognized? That Jesus was not just another guy. That Jesus was not just a rabbi. That Jesus was the God of the world. The creator of the universe. And Peter said, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. See, when you come into contact with the living God, when you come into contact with Jesus in a real way, you're no longer worried about what other people are doing. You're too busy trying to get your heart right with God. You're too busy trying to get rid of all of the fault and the sin and the muck and the crud in your own life. And you don't have time to worry about what other people are doing. You guys, if you've crept in to a legalistic, pointing out the fault in others, critical kind of a lifestyle, then you know that that's a mark of a false relationship with God. That you've entered in to a religious experience. And you need to repent of that. You need to move away from that. You need to quit worrying about what other people are doing and center your life upon Jesus. And he, he will work on you in ways that will blow your mind. Well, a second mark of a false relationship with God is found there in the middle of verse 2 when he says, Beware of evil workers. Beware of evil workers. And this, is, again, is an interesting way to describe these guys because they came to these cities and to these churches with a lot of pomp and circumstance. They would show up, and, and you know, I kind of envision it, you know, like a limo, but they didn't have limos, but maybe it was like a carriage, you know, with just white horses and everything was perfect and the red carpet being laid out and, you know, on the side of it, it says like the dream team, you know. And, and this is the guys that are going to come and they're going to help the church to be more like God, to be closer to God, to have a better relationship with God and yet they would do just the opposite. They would actually pull them further away from the Lord. And they came with letters of recommendation. When these guys would show up, they'd have these scrolls and, and they would have, you know, just all kinds of nice things to say about them from the church in Jerusalem and from other places. Oh, these guys are awesome. You ought to listen to everything they have to say. And, you know, signed by, by all these men. And they came recommended. And yet Paul says, you know what? They're evil workers. They're evil workers. They're leading you astray. And here's the implication in our life. Is that when our words and our actions don't match. That when there's a disconnect between our lips and our lives. See, that's what was happening with these men. They were evil workers, and yet everybody was saying how great they were. What everybody was saying about them did not line up with who they really were. With what they were saying about themselves didn't line up with who they really were. And you guys, that can creep into our life and it's a mark of a false relationship with God. 
when we begin to have a relationship with the Lord where our words don't line up with our actions. You see, we, we call ourselves Christians. And that basically means that you're a follower of Jesus. And so when you think about that, when you think about the fact that you're a follower of Jesus, think about what that means. Think about who Jesus is and how he lived his life. And are the words of my mouth lining up with the actions of my life? Does the confession that I'm a Christian line up with the lifestyle that I live? Do people see Jesus in me? Or do they, do they just see anger? Do they see bitterness? Do they see gossip? Do they see complaining? Do they see somebody who handles their difficulty just the same as everyone else? Do they see someone who when everything isn't going their way, they're upset about it? Do they see someone who isn't honest, who cheats on their time card, who doesn't work hard, who slacks off when the boss isn't looking? Do they see someone who, just like everybody else, runs their spouse down at work? Or do the words of our mouth line up with the actions of our life? Do our employees, if we're a boss, do they see Jesus in us? Do we treat them like Jesus would? Do we honor them and respect them and treat them kindly and, and, and with compassion? Or, or do we treat them like every other boss would? See, people notice that and the confession of our mouth has to line up with the actions of our life. Otherwise, we've entered into this false relationship with God where there's a disconnect. Just like these religious men, there was a disconnect. I mean, they looked good. They sounded good. But their hearts were far from the Lord. Which really leads us into the the third mark of a false relationship with God as he says, beware of the mutilation. Beware of the mutilation. And what he's talking about is the fact that the Judaizers put so much emphasis in circumcision. And it wasn't, you know, at all about what Jesus is doing in their life. It wasn't about what God's showing you in, your, in the word. They would show up and it would be like, hey, uh, have you been circumcised? And it wasn't about Jesus. It wasn't about the word. It was about circumcision. And, and you can just imagine a service, you know, and, and there'd be some worship and, and there would be a Bible study. And then they would say, hey, uh, afterward, if, if you've never been circumcised, uh, we invite you to come up and we've got some people that will help you with that. <laughs> That's the kind of emphasis that they put on. It was ridiculous. And, you know, you can just see they show up and these, you know, with all this pomp and all of this recommendation, it's like, hey, um, why don't we have all the guys line up and drop your drawers and we're going to see who really loves the Lord here. And that's how ridiculous it was. But you know what? Again, we do the same kinds of things. And the implication is, 
is that when we put all of the emphasis upon the exterior, all of the emphasis upon the outward appearance, see, circumcision was an outward sign of an inward change. Circumcision was the cutting away of the flesh to represent and to symbolize someone who had separated themselves from the world. That they had cut the flesh in a spiritual sense off. That they had died to the flesh. And so circumcision physically without the circumcision spiritually was worthless. And yet that was where all of their emphasis was. Have you been circumcised? Uh, No. Well, but I'm 30 years old. I I don't really think this is a good idea. No, it is a good idea. You know, holding the guy down. Come on. And it's like we do the same kinds of things, though. All of the emphasis upon the exterior, the outward appearance, and nothing about the heart. And we do that to people when we tell them it's about the way that you dress. It's about the way you look. Oh, you have a tattoo? Oh, you can't be close to God. Oh, you wear an earring? Look what that person does with their hair. Or look at what kind of car they drive. Or look at where they live. And it's about the outward. And what that does is it creates within us this culture in the church that unfortunately many churches exist in and many Christians live in of putting on an outward goodness, an outward spirituality, an outward righteousness, but inside you're far from God. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. You look good. Boy, that tomb looks great. But inside, there's nothing but death and separation from God. And you know what? We can get into that kind of a mentality with the Lord so easily. And it exists in the church. And it's a mark of a false relationship with God. Where we put on a nice pair of clothes and we look good. And we know what to say. And we can sing the songs. And we can put on a happy face. And we get our 2.5 kids, you know, looking great. And we tell them, look, I know we had a meltdown this morning, but you pretend to be happy. (laughs) And you don't tell anybody about what happened. And you know how many pastors do that? And that's why pastors' kids are, you know, have that stigma of being a pastor's kid. You know what? My wife and I have said, look, our kids are not going to be labeled pastor's kids. They're kids. They're people. Whatever they end up doing, they're just kids. They're just people. We're not going to allow people to put pressure on them to be somehow live up to other people's expectations. And, and nor am I going to, to model hypocrisy to them by saying, you know what? I know that mom and dad got into a fight last night. I know that dad really blew it. I know that dad, you know, made a mistake here and dad did this, but you're not to talk about that. You, you don't mention that to anybody. Now, look, I would rather that my kids not go around and just, you know, mention all kinds of my mistakes. I'm not like encouraging them to, hey, do you want to write a letter to the editor? You know, <laughs> I'm not telling them to, but I'm not telling them not to. And believe me, Caitlin is a very honest kid. 
So I, who knows what she says at school? You know, it kind of frightens me. And drop her off at school. It's like, okay, you know, we are lighting a firecracker here. <laughs> who knows what's going to happen with this child today? But in the church, it, it's like, you know what? If you guys know my weaknesses, hey, I'm cool with that because I share them from the pulpit. Whoa. And, and I don't mind if you know, because I'm not trying to live up to some kind of a expectation of, of what you want me to be. And for years I did. And for years I was kind of told that you have to live up to a standard as a pastor. And so, you know, put on a happy face. Put on, you know, the, the, the perfect little life. And don't let anybody see that you make mistakes. And, and don't be honest. And don't share your heart. And, and don't say things that might be controversial. And, and you know what? There was a, there was a point. And, and it wasn't like a moment. It, it didn't happen overnight. It was more like a process where I began to realize that I was being pulled simultaneously in like a hundred different directions, and people were trying to make me into their personal Gumby doll. And, and you know, a pastor's got to be this, and a pastor's got to be that, and, and, a, and a pastor should do this, and a pastor shouldn't talk that way, and a pastor shouldn't dress like that, and a pastor's kids should be like this, and a pastor should almost never make that kind of money, and a pastor should never do this. And, and you know, it's just all of the pastor, pastor, pastor. And it's like, look, there is no way that I can live up to all of those expectations. And so I'm just going to be who I am. And you know what? It was a freeing day in my life. It, it was a freeing point where I just was able to be myself. And just able to say, you know what? Not everybody's going to get me. Some people don't like my humor some people don't get my personality. Some people don't get my style. Some people don't get the random things that I say that just come to my mind. But, but some people do. And, and I'm not going to miss out on the opportunity to minister to those people that God has called me to minister to while I'm trying to minister to people that I'm not called to minister to. While I'm trying to be somebody that I'm not and I become a shell of a person that I'm called to be. And you know what? There's a freeing thing in the church too. There's a freeing point where as a pastor and his wife are, are just who they are and they're honest about their weaknesses and their struggles and they're not putting on a show, there's a freeing element for the entire church where, where everybody's just like, you know what? I can be who I am too. That doesn't mean we excuse and justify our sin. It just means that we're not trying to be somebody that we're not so that we can make other people happy. You can please some of the people all of the time, and you can please all of the people some of the time, but you will never please all of the people all of the time. You won't. And, and I'm still figuring that out. But there was a freedom when I realized I can't minister to everybody. And you know what? That, that freedom is there for you as well. And I hope that, that you've come to realize that. And I hope that you're not placing all of the emphasis upon the outward and the exterior, trying to impress people. Meanwhile, your heart is far from God. Meanwhile, you are just like dead men's bones. You know what to say. You know how to dress. 
And you're putting all of the emphasis upon the exterior. And you know what? It really saddens me when I see that in the church. It saddens me when I see someone come in who, who maybe, you know, dresses a little weird. Maybe he's got some metal in their face. Maybe their hair is, is you know, not what we would consider to be of the Lord. You know, and, and they don't look the way we think a Christian ought to look. Or they don't act the way we think a Christian ought to act. And, and we don't say anything to them. But we just kind of do one of these things where we look them up and down. And they know exactly what we're doing. And it just sort of sucks the life out of them. And that angers me when I see that. And that ought to never be a part of what we're doing here. That every person from whatever walk of life or lifestyle or you know, way they like to dress, that they would be welcomed here. And that God and that Jesus would begin to do his work in them if there needs to be some things to change. But that we're not regulating righteousness. I wonder oftentimes, when we kind of put these outward expectations upon people and we try to define what it means to be a follower of Jesus with our own little box. And I wonder if Jesus says, man, you wouldn't have liked me when I was here on the earth. You'd have looked me up and down. I don't know if I'd be welcomed at that church. What a sad reality. Three marks of a false relationship with God. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. But then Paul begins to tell us three marks of a real relationship with God. Three indications that you're on the right track. That you're relating to God in the right way. Because you guys, that's what God so longs from us is a real and a true and a genuine relationship. It's what compelled him to take human flesh upon himself. To set aside all of his divine privileges. To be accused wrongfully, to be beaten mercilessly, to be crucified, to take the sin of the world upon himself. He did all of that so that you and I could have a relationship with him. Not so that you and I could have a religion. Not so that you and I could say that, you know, we're so great and we've got our lives all together and our hair is perfect. And, and our smile is so nice. And our kids behave so well. And we dress just right. None of that garbage. God doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about all the fluff and all of that stuff. What he cares about is you and your heart and coming into a real and an honest and a genuine relationship with him. No games. No games. No sham. No emphasis upon the exterior when your heart is far from him. It's not what he wants. He wants a relationship. And the first thing he says is, for we are the circumcision. In other words, we've truly had our hearts circumcised by God. It's not just the outward cutting of the flesh that we've experienced. But it's the inward work of Jesus that he's captured my heart. That my heart doesn't belong to the world, but my heart belongs to Him. 
And I want to serve Him. And I want to obey Him. And it's an inward work of God. Circumcision of the heart. As Paul would say in Romans chapter 2, that a Jew is not one outwardly, but he is one inwardly. And they didn't understand that. That it was the heart that God wanted. And He wants your heart. And the first thing he says is, we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. In other words, who experience God in their heart, who love to worship the Lord, not just intellectually, but in the Spirit. See, and and many of us have an intellectual kind of a relationship with God. And, And I went to Bible college with a lot of these kind of guys. And I was one of them, I think. Where it was basically like, plug in the USB cable to my head and just download all kinds of information. Because that's, that's what I want. I just want information about God. And God just becomes like another Wikipedia site for me to go and get little tidbits of information so I can sound smart about something. God just becomes another way for me to gather information. And it's Bible trivia. Oh, I can smoke you in Bible trivia. I know the third king on the fourth day, you know, I know how old this guy was when he died. I know how many thrones there were in this particular, you know, house that's talked about in First Kings or whatever, just ridiculous stuff that is meaningless information. And we're just like, yep, I've got it all together. I know the Bible backwards and forwards. And it's just intellectual. And Paul says here, we worship God in the Spirit. It's in your heart. And it's real worship. And I'll tell you what, I I worry about people when I hear them say, I'm not really into worship. I just like to come for the Bible study. It's like, well, well, let's hold on for a second here. Because when you read the book of Revelation, there's a lot of worship going on in heaven. And, And it starts now. We should love to worship. We should be excited about the Lord. Now, I'm not a real excitable guy. You know, It's just not me. My wife, she's Italian. She's very excitable. She gets excited about everything. I don't get that excited about stuff. I'm just kind of, you know, pretty much level, even keeled. I don't have real lows and I don't have real highs. It's just kind of like boom. But I do get excited about some things once in a while. When the Seahawks went to the Super Bowl a few years ago. (laughs) I grew up in, you know, Seattle area. I love the Seahawks. Grown up watching them when they were horrible, when Dave Craig was fumbling the ball every other snap, you know. And the only highlight of that team was Steve Largent, you know. And, and I remember watching those guys, and I loved them. Then finally, they're in the Super Bowl. This is so great. And then we got ripped off by the refs who just totally <laughs> choked. And it went from the best day of my life to the worst day of my life. It was a tale of two highs, right? There was one point where I just like turned the TV off and we had like 30 people over and I said, look, everybody go home. (laughs) I I was kidding, but not really. 
because it got really bad. I, I mean, I would love to break that game down for you and just show you how bad the officiating was. I'm still bitter about that. But I get excited. When the Mariners won 116 games in 2001, I was excited. But then they lost in the second round of the playoffs, and it was all for naught. So I wasn't that excited. But I get excited about some things. And what is wrong with being excited about the Lord? And some people say, you know, you don't need to show any emotion. But then they're showing emotion for other things. Now, I'm not saying that in order to worship God, that you have to be running up and down the aisle, you know, praise banners, you know, all happy, clappy, and woo, you know, kind of thing. We don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. But there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I don't know about the praise banners and running up and down the aisle, you know, maybe not, maybe not here. But there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with showing emotion. There's nothing wrong with raising your hands. There's nothing wrong with bowing, with laying flat out before the Lord. Sometimes we look at that and we go, man, that's a little weird. That's a little weird. But then we, we have no problem showing emotion in other areas of our life. Now, again, I'm not saying that that is what demonstrates real worship. And see, that's where we get into a dangerous situation where we think that defines worship. And it's all about your emotion, and it's all about what you do on the outside. And I will say this, if the only time that you raise your hands or bow, or you know, if you're in one of these churches that runs up and down the aisle and you know, banners going and stuff, if that's the only time that you do that, that is a problem. If the only time you raise your hands to the Lord is when other people are watching and you're doing it to kind of show people that you are, you know, spiritual and you've got this special thing going on, that's a problem. We ought to be doing that in our private worship as well. If it's genuine and it's real, then we're doing it whether anybody's watching or not. And we don't judge people that don't do it. And I think that's easy, too, for, for those that are a little bit more emotional, a little bit more showy, to kind of judge those that aren't. Look at that guy. His hands are folded, and he's sitting there like a bump on a log. That guy ain't got nothing going on, you know? <laughs> and it's like, no, you don't know what's going on in his heart. You have no idea what's going on in his or her heart. And so it, it isn't all about that, but, you guys, we should enjoy worship. We should enjoy worship. And I would be a person that would be really asking yourself where the disconnect is if you don't enjoy worship, if you don't enjoy singing to the Lord and, and worshiping God. There is a problem there. The second mark of a real relationship with God is found in verse 3 as well as he says, Rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now, this word rejoice is a different word than what was used in verse 1. This word actually would be better translated boast. It's a different Greek word altogether. And in fact, don't quote me on this, and I'm no Greek scholar by any stretch of the imagination. I'm a complete hack. But don't quote me on this, but I believe that this word that's translated rejoice here is always in the New Testament translated boast except for here. And why it's translated rejoice in this instant, I don't really know. But think of it as boast. It's to make your boast in Jesus. And the idea here 
is that we're not boasting about anything other than Jesus Christ as Paul would say to us that he boasted in nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was where his boast was. And you guys, the implication is that Jesus is the best thing about us. That a mark of a real relationship with God is that you understand that Jesus is the best thing about you. And it's the best thing about our church. See, oftentimes we present ourselves as having all sorts of other things that are best, the best thing about us. It's our personality, it's our sense of humor, it's our intelligence, it's our wittiness, it's our mercy, it's, it's our talents, it's our athletic ability, and that's the best thing about us. And people will, will, will you know, recognize those things as the best thing. Man, this guy is an amazing athlete. Or this gal is so intelligent. Or they are so talented. Do you know what kind of an artist they are? Do you know what kind of a musician they are? And that becomes the best thing about you according to others. But here's the thing. Our boast should be in Jesus. The best thing about you is Jesus. Bottom line. And the best thing about our church, listen, it's not our outreaches. People say, oh man, that church is so great. They're always doing outreaches and they're always reaching in the community and they got that soup kitchen and they're helping the homeless and the, and the poor and they're giving money and oh man, that, that's the best thing about that church. No, it's Jesus. Man, that worship team at that church, it's so great and the worship is so amazing. That's not the best thing about us. It's not our Bible teaching it's not our programs. It's not our awesome folding chairs. It's not this phenomenal building that we have with mini blinds with six inches of dust on them. It's none of that. None of that is the best thing about us. And even as we move and transition into our new building, which I'm totally stoked about, and it's going to allow us to grow, and it's going to allow us to... to better facilitate what God's doing in our church. But that won't be the best thing about us. No matter how nice that building is, no matter how cool the decor is, and I got some great ideas for things, no matter how good any of that is, the best thing about us is Jesus, you guys. That's where we put our boast, is in Jesus, nothing else. And the last thing, the last mark of a real relationship with God, he says, and have no confidence in the flesh. They were putting all of their confidence in their flesh. And Paul says a real relationship, the mark of a real relationship is someone who puts no confidence in the flesh and they have complete and utter dependence upon God. Now that's easy to say. But when the rubber meets the road, do we completely depend upon God? Or do we kind of take over? Do we make it happen? Do we, do we try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps? I'm going to make this marriage work. I'm going to make my kids turn out good. I'm going to make my business prosper. 
I'm going to make myself and will myself into this job. I'm going to make myself have good relationships with people. And it's tight fists and it's clenched teeth. And I can do this because I have the ability. And, and yet, we need to come to the end of all of that. And yes, there's some responsibility on our part. Sure. You don't just neglect your kids and then wonder why they turned out the way they did. You don't just shine on your spouse and then wonder why you're getting a divorce. You, you don't just sit around at home, you know, watching reruns of Perry Mason and, and, and hoping that you'll find a job. It, you, you don't, that doesn't work. There, there is responsibility on our part. There is something that we have to bring to the table, but we recognize that at the end of the day, it's God that's going to work it all out. That in reality, as a parent, it's got to be the Lord that's going to get a hold of my kids. That as a husband or as a wife, that it's got to be the Lord that's going to make this relationship work. That as a, an employee or an employer, that it's got to be Jesus that's going to enable me to do my job and, and to oversee this company. As a business owner, that, that it's going to be God and Him alone that's going to prosper my business. I remember when I started my fruit stand in Redmond, and I, I did it out of just complete desperation to do something. To, to, you know, have some kind of freedom to do ministry. And, and I was an assistant pastor at the time. And I started a fruit stand. We sold fruit on the side of the road. And I made a living at it and a good living at it. And people would ask me, how do you do this? And I would say, I have no idea. We've got some Costco tents on the side of the road with a calculator. And, and we've got 30 or 40 people in here at all times. I have no idea how this happens. It doesn't make any sense, but it's the Lord. And so our confidence is in God. It's just like when people ask my mom, man, how, how did Ryan turn out to be a pastor? And, you know, you got divorced when he was two, and you, you, know, you weren't, didn't raise him in the church, and, you know, made a lot of mistakes. And my mom says, I have no idea. I have no idea what happened to that kid because he was on a fast track to making a lot of stupid decisions. And God got a hold of his life. He didn't take credit for it. I don't take credit for my life. And neither should we, you. None of us should. We have complete dependence upon God. We have no confidence in the flesh. We're not trying to make it happen. We're not trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's the Lord and Him alone. Three marks of a false relationship with God. Three marks of a real relationship with God. I hope that, that you meditate upon these things. I hope that as we leave here today, that it doesn't go in one ear and out the other. That we're not just hearers of the word, but we're doers of the word, you guys. And that we truly, truly ask God to give us a real relationship with him a real, dynamic, and vital relationship where he captures our heart and he's the focus of our life. Let's stand and pray together. 
You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, you may email us at info at calvarycrookcounty.com. Or if you would like to write to us, you may do so at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thank you for listening, and God bless.